on Wednesday afternoons, and we have been discipling each other uh, in, uh, in following Christ and being in serious about that. We've been reading a book called The Life of Prayer, which has been uh, challenging and uh, inspiring and convicting in so many different ways. But in, in reading that and some other things, um, God has been convicting me that one of the great sins of the church in our day is, is not a, a sin of commission. It's not something that we are thinking, saying, or doing, but it is something we're not doing. And it is a sin of, of prayerlessness. That the church should be a praying church. And at the heart of our relationship with Him and at the heart of our mission is, is prayer is seeking the God who can accomplish all things and to whom nothing is impossible. And prayerlessness is a declaration of independence. You know, prayerlessness says that we can do it. It says that we don't need his presence and his power. And so I'm hoping that as we open God's word again this morning and we are almost finishing Colossians. We've got this week and next, and we'll finish the book of Colossians after many months of working our ways through this. Uh, but this morning, he challenges the church, or he calls the church to prayer, and I'm hoping that you, that we, will hear it as a call to prayer as well, and that God would stir among us a, uh, a movement of prayer, because I believe it is through the movement of prayer that there are movements of God. And in the movements of God is everything that we desire for ourselves and for our families and for our church and for our community and our ministry. And so let us hear then the word of God in Colossians chapter 4 verses 2 to 6. Paul writes to the church and he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, and walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come uh, to you this morning. We come to sit at your feet and to learn of you. And so, so we come to your word and we know that it is living and true. And our deep desire is that you would speak it into our lives with power. Father, may it not just convey to us new information, but may it store us into a life of transformation. Father, would it awaken us from our sleep and move us out of our complacency and cause us to be with you and to live differently and to begin to seek the power of a new life and of an advancing ministry and mission in the life of the church. For we ask and pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the fall, the leadership is planning to do strategic planning. Uh, we've been talking about that as we've moved out here to a new property. and We haven't really done an examination of our, uh, our mission statement, our vision and our mission, and thinking through who we are as we settle in on the new property and kind of get our feet under us to sit down and to start asking those questions again. Who are we? What is God calling us to be and to do in this place at this time that we might be an effective and useful instrument in his hand? for the advancing of his kingdom. I suspect that 
Our planning will capture what a lot of us have been talking about, which is discipleship and outreach. And uh, we'll be hearing more about that, thinking about that, talking about that. But I believe that is at the core uh, business of the church, discipleship and outreach. They're the marching orders that Jesus left us. Matthew 28, that great commission that he gave to the church. He said to them that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, that he is the Lord of heaven and earth and of all things, and because of his authority, because of who he is, because of what God has given him to do and to be for his church, because of all that, he says to us, go and make disciples, right? Which is evangelism and mission. It is local and it's global. We go beyond the doors to reach a kingdom with the authority of Jesus Christ to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. In other words, making disciples isn't just making converts, it's making followers of Jesus who understand all that he has commanded and are bringing their lives into conformity with it. And Behold, I'm with you always even to the end of the age. I, who have all power and authority, am with you to accomplish this task. The marching orders for the church. These are our core responsibilities then of every biblical and evangelical church. And there's a time to get back to basics. And I think in many of our conversations, I'm hearing us saying that we need to get back down to some of the basics, which is real discipleship, not just making casual church goers, but making real Christ followers. We're beginning to wake up from our complacency in our personal lives and our walk with him. And to really double down on what it means to follow Jesus and to be open to his work in our lives and through us in the community. Time to refocus and to rethink and to retool. And it's a little of what he's doing in my life, even as I've been reading about prayer and talking with some of these guys about what that means. And he connects prayer to the whole of the Christian life. It's not this little slice of a thing that you do over here, but it is, it is, the, it is, it is central and part of a whole life of walking in the spirit and not in the flesh and living within constant communion with our living Savior and seeking that, that, that life that flows from him that makes us more like Jesus and more useful and effective in his kingdom. The strength of our sense of Mission and community, seeking God for what he wants to do and opening ourselves up to being used by God. We're really open and desiring to be used by God. That he might bring the gospel in new ways as we disciple ourselves and our community toward Christ. John Mott wrote and said that there's an alarming weakness among Christians And it's that we're producing Christian activities faster than we're producing Christian experience and Christian faith. That the discipline of our souls, the deepening of our acquaintance with God, in other words, core discipleship. What it means to walk with him, to know him and to love him and to draw life from him. He says that we are producing Christian activities faster than we're producing real disciples who are able than to be effective and useful in ministry, that we're not proving sufficiently 
grounded in these things to enable us to meet the unprecedented expansion and opportunity and responsibility that is in our generation. And so we have to deepen if we are going to be effective to follow Christ, the importance of the depth of personal discipleship so that we might be equal to, not in our own strength, but in the grace and power that is ours in Christ. And so Paul's concern is the proclamation of the gospel. We see running through this, this passage as he concludes with the church after writing to them through most of it about the, the Christ above all, the glory of Christ, and what that means for the discipleship of the church. And then he calls the church to prayer and discipleship in word and deed. And so he asks for prayer. Paul, I love it to see Paul ask for prayer. If Paul needs to ask for prayer, if Paul needs the church praying for him, you know, how much more, or perhaps at least equally, do, do we need to be praying and seeking that prayer in the life of the church to accomplish those things that God is calling us to accomplish? All right, he calls for gospel-centered praying. Right? In verses 2 to 4, he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. And at the same time that you're doing that, pray for us. Pray for the ministry and the, for the advancement of the kingdom. Pray that God would open doors, he says, right? Pray that God may open to us a door for the word that we may declare the mystery of Christ. Right? So we see that passion, that desire to declare the mystery of Christ. That that's what it's about for the mission of the church. That we would have an opportunity to declare the mystery of Christ. And he says, so pray for a door of opportunity. That we can do that. Effectively. And winsomely. And so he is calling for this gospel-centered, kingdom-centered prayer. And then he calls for worthy and wise walking that accompanies that. And so um, we see how the whole life comes together. Right? It's not just pray over here and then go about your business over here. But then he calls to wise walking, so to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the most and the best use of the time. Your speech always gracious, seasoned with salt, knowing what to say. He's describing gospel and kingdom-centered followers of Jesus. And I think that's what prayer partly does for us, is it refocuses us off of ourselves and, and off of, you know, all those things that distract us and fill our hearts and our minds all the time and helps uh, and shapes a people that is gospel and kingdom centered. In our thinking, in our praying, and in our desiring, he describes a people here that if we were to, to live out and do what he says here, continuing steadfastly in prayer, praying for the things that he tells us to pray for, and walking in wisdom specifically before outsiders, and looking to make the most of the opportunity, he's describing a whole life that is gospel and kingdom-centered around the mission of the church. So he calls us to prayer which is at the heart of our relationship with the Lord, but is also the source of power for the Christian life and the Christian witness. 
Right? It's at the center of a relationship, just like talking to your spouse is at the center of your relationship with them. You can't have a relationship without it. And so prayer stands at the central place in a relationship with God, a, a dialogue and a communion and a, and, a, and a being with him in that kind of a way. But it's also the source then for the Christian life and witness and everything that we hope and desire for. And we need to understand this. No, no, we need to believe this. Or we won't pray. And if we do believe it, we will pray. Right? We see that. Right? If we, if we don't understand this, prayer will simply become another formality of our religion. You know, we'll just ask each other, did you say your prayers? Right? You know, it's just that formality of religion. It's what we do. You know, did you, did you read that, you know, a passage today? Did you say your prayers? As opposed to seeing prayer as, again, something integrated and integral to the entire life of walking with him in relationship. And it's there that we find the grace and the power for our own lives and for our witness. And then it becomes this living thing. It doesn't become a a duty and a drudgery I have to do. It becomes a lifeline for a life that I'm called to live and a person I'm called to be. So he says, be watchful. And be thankful in your prayers. We have so much to be thankful for. If we spend more of our time being thankful in prayer, thankful for the God who has loved us, thankful for the grace and the mercy that are ours in Jesus Christ, thankful for the good work that he has begun in us, that he will not stop until we are with him and see him face to face. Face. Thankful for that Holy Spirit that he has poured out into our hearts, the love that he has poured out into our hearts by his Spirit. Thankful for his gracious presence that he will never leave us or forsake us, even to the end of the age. Thankful that he is at work. We have so much to be thankful for in in the big picture and so much day by day. Even as we step out into a beautiful day of spring and we know the God who has made the beauty of it all dwells with us and in us. Thankful, he says, and watchful. We're watchful in our prayers. I started to think about watchful for what? You ever think about watch? You know, Jesus says, come and watch and pray with me. To be watchful. Right? And there's a sense in which we should be watchful. And so, in other words, looking to see what we should be praying for. Where is the battle right now? Right? Where is the battle in my own life and in my own heart? Right? I'm watchful in prayer, and when I see a chink in the armor, when I see the weakness, when I see the fight, when I see the conflict, when I see the pain, I know when I'm watchful, I know that that's where I focus my heart and my mind in prayer. When we see the battle in the life of the church, if I'm watchful, where do we need to be praying in the life of the church? What do we need prayer for? We're seeking two new staff members. Right, who will be crucial to the health and life of the church as we step forward in the life of our youth and in, and in the leading of our worship. And are we, are we praying? Are you diligently praying daily for watching? We know these are key things in the life of the church. And we want God to give and to do what we need to provide for us. And so we should watch. Where are the chinks? Where is the conflict? Where do you hear the grumblings? You're having conversations. You, you hear conversations. Where's the complaining, right? Where's the conflict? Where's the whining? Where's the, where's the rub, 
right? And instead of becoming part of it, right? Instead of being part of the problem, we're watchful in prayer. We know this is a danger to the life of the church. And so we enter into prayer on behalf of the church, right? That God would nip these things in the bud and that he would come near. He would unite us and strengthen us and and grace us that we might be effective because these are the things that undermine, right? So we're watchful. Where's the battle? That I might enter in and be a part of it. We need to be with Christ and to talk to him and to connect with him and to know him and to love him and to draw life and strength from him. We need fresh supplies of his grace and his power every moment in every hour. To be the person he wants us to be, to walk in the spirit. Do you you believe that? In order to walk in the spirit, we we need fresh supplies of his grace every, every hour and every moment. Because if we believe that we do, we will pray that we might experience those gifts. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9, and it's that passage where Paul is praying about his thorn. Right, the thorn in his flesh, that thing that, that won't go away. And it says, I pleaded with the Lord about this. I prayed. I, I wrestled with him. Over and over again, he says several times, multiple times, he, he wrestled. He said he was watchful in prayer. He knew where the weakness was. He knew where the thing, the, the battle was in his own heart. And so he went there and he does grapple with the Lord. In that sense, does battle. And I went to the Lord. I pleaded with him that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in your weakness. And therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, Paul says, in my weakness, so that the power of Christ might rest on me. The Lord taught Paul to embrace his weakness. Paul wanted out of his weakness. He wanted to be made strong again. Take this thing away from me so so that I could stand strong. He thinks strength is in being delivered from his weakness, delivered from the thing that's bugging him. And God says, embrace your weakness. Because then you'll pray. Weak people pray. Weak people need God. Weak people need his power. Weak people reach out of themselves. See, if we think, if we walk in our own confidence in ourselves, we will not be a people Connected to the Lord for fresh supplies of his grace and his power in our lives. And so Paul, the Lord teaches Paul to embrace his weakness. So that the power of Christ would rest on him. I hear things like that in my heart. I, you know, I read it for years and years and it's one of those things that you long for. You should long for the power of Christ to rest upon us. It's not automatic. It doesn't come with our Cheerios in the morning. Right? The power of Christ resting on us. It's not automatic. It's something he, as he tells Paul, you have to embrace your weakness and keep pleading. Instead of pleading for the thorn to be removed, be pleading for my grace that is sufficient and strengthens and empowers you. So that actually the power of Christ is that which motivates and enables you to do those things. And not because you are strong. Both scripture and experience tell us to experience the fullness of his power, the fullness of that spirit, 
touching our lives, it comes through prayer. I don't know about you, the, the, the more prayerless I am, the further I am away from my devotions, the less time I'm spending with the Lord, the worse I am. The more full of myself I am. It tells us we know that as we are close with him, as we walk with him, as we seek him, not say our prayers, but seek him and find him, that we are graced and we come away full where we had been empty. See, if we understand and believe this, we will pray. Paul says in verse 2, as he starts that, before watchful and thankful, he says, continue steadfast in prayer. Something Paul says all the time, something he picked up from Jesus, who told parables about being persistent in our prayer and praying and not giving up. And so Paul picks it up and again and again to the church, he tells us to be steadfast, continue steadfast in prayer. Don't stop, he says. Keep praying, persevere in it, persist in it. Why? We're told many words don't do much with God, right? Jesus told us that too. Many words, he says he doesn't hear you for your many words, but he, but he does say keep praying. And the reason that he does is because it matters. He tells the church, you guys keep praying. Steadfastly continue in it because it matters. Because God hears your prayers and he answers our prayers and the prayers of his people accomplish much. They're effective for much. And so it matters. And so he tells us to do it again and again. Pray. James 4, James is writing to the church. He rebukes us and he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Are you experiencing a certain spiritual poverty? In your personal walk, your, where's your joy? Where's my strength? You know, I'm worn out or I'm, I'm in a bad place or in a bad mood or your attitudes are in the wrong place or I'm having, you know, spiritual failure or my relationships are not what they should be. And he says, you do not have, the context is relationship, the context is people that's fighting and quarreling among you. And he says, you don't have this spiritual strength and grace you need because you don't ask. Because you're full of yourself. Instead of full of his spirit. And he rebukes us. You don't have because you don't ask. And we know that he's talking about spiritual graces here. And not because, you know, Joel Osteen would take this and say you don't have, you know, because you don't ask your best life now and all the things that he would say. But the very next verse in, in James 4, 3, he says, and he rebukes us a second time. And he says, and that when you do pray, he says, you don't get answers because you pray selfishly. You pray about you. And so he's, he's not here when he says you don't have because you don't ask. He's not talking about your Mercedes or your, you know, your best life now. He's talking about the work of the Spirit and the life of his church and in our relationships and in our ministry. Which again and again is where he calls us to. When, we, when Paul patterns prayer for us, whether it's here or somewhere else, what is the prayer he wants? 
Don't pray that I wouldn't suffer. Don't pray that they don't beat me with rods in the next town. He doesn't ask them that. Don't pray that they wouldn't have a riot and, you know, run me out of town on a rail. He says, pray that God would open a door. I can speak the gospel. Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, I tell you, I tell you, church, disciples, followers of Jesus, I tell you, ask, and you, it will be given to you. Knock, seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open. Everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, the door will be opened. Offer the grace to simply believe Jesus. Because we would pray without ceasing. We would continue steadfast in prayer if we believed that in asking we would receive. And when we knock, doors would open. Right? Which is what he calls us to do. John MacArthur says prayer should be a persistent, courageous struggle from which the believer may come away limping. All right? And you have to think of Jacob, right? The persistent, courageous struggle with God, right? That you may come away limping. And, and Jacob's thing, if you think of Jacob, was he was going to cling to God and he's not going to let go. He's going to persist in prayer or, you know, wrestling with God until he blessed him. And for his persistence, right? If you remember the story, he's like, let me go. And Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go. And he says, and for his persistence, God blessed him. Right? God answered his prayer. God met him there. Jesus says, the one who asks receives. The seeker finds, the knocker has doors open to him. And this is literally what Paul is asking them to pray in verse 3. At the same time, he says, pray for us that God would open a door for us. Why does Paul ask the church to pray that prayer? Because he believes what Jesus said, that those who knock, doors are opened. And he wants the door for the gospel opened. And so he entreats the church to pray with him, to pray for him, for the opportunities of ministry that are the mission of the church and why we exist. Revelation 3.7 says, The words of the Holy One and the True One, who has the key of David and who opens what no one will shut, and who shuts what no one will open. In terms of what the key of David is, and we can go back and probably do a whole Bible study here, but I would simply say this. I, if nothing else you get from that, it says Jesus is the key master. Jesus is the key master. He's the door opener, and when he opens doors, no one shuts them. And if he shuts a door, you will not get it open with your battering ram. Right? He is a door opener. He is a door closer. He is the Lord of the keys. And so we, he says, entreat the Lord of the keys that he would open a door for the word. He's the door opener. He's the heart changer, the relationship healer, the courage giver, the power endower, right? God does these things. And no one else does these things. And so we seek them from him. We knock on his door that he would do these things. Paul wants to go and make disciples of all nations. And so he enlists the church to plead with him. For open doors. 
And then he turns, though, and he directs it after he asks for that prayer. And he, and he tells us that that prayer matters. He directs it back on them. And he says, also, you church, um, it's, it's also about your own witness and your own walk and your own place. Right. They're not with Paul where he is. And so he, he turns on them and he says in verse five, you guys walk in wisdom toward the outsiders, toward the rest of the community. Whether it's a community here that surrounds us in this neighborhood or the outsiders that you work with at work, those who stand outside of the church, outside of Christ. So whether at work or in the restaurant or in the community or wherever you live, work or play, he says, walk in wisdom toward those outsiders before them. To walk in wisdom, it means to be smart and godly in the way that you conduct yourself before the watching world. Be smart and be godly in the way that you conduct yourself before those who are looking on, wondering what it's all about. The number one critique of the church that you would hear almost any time you get the list and you look at it and it's been done again and again and again on the polls, what's your big complaints about? Number one is they're a bunch of hypocrites. Right, and, and as often or not, that is a true statement. They're a bunch of hypocrites. They were not always walking smart and godly before the watching world. They see us sometimes at our worst. Walking in wisdom applies to all of our relationships. If you look right before this, you know, he's just gone through a list of all of our relationships, been addressing our marriages and our families and our employment, right, and calling us to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is to walk in wisdom in your marriage and in your family and in your employment before the watching world because you are going to reflect to them what it means to follow Jesus Christ and to bear his name. Right? Some, for some folks, the only Bible they will ever read is your life, your attitude. Right? And, and that's for, for folks that are not opening the scriptures anymore. We are, he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Walking in wisdom means not being legalistic. He talked about this earlier in his letter. I think he's gathering up all the things that he has, that he has talked to the church about in the way that we, we do church, in the way that we are in the world, in all of our relationships. And he says all of these things, walk in, in all of these things in wisdom and in godliness. And it means don't be legalistic. Don't put up barriers to the church and to the gospel that God hasn't put up. Don't make it harder than it has to be. Don't make up stuff and, and put hurdles in front of people that, that God doesn't want them to have to jump or hoops they have to jump through to get into the church. You know, don't turn people off and make them uncomfortable because of our hangups and preferences that God has not put out there in the scripture. The gospel community is to be attractive and appealing and winsome and the beauty of the gospel Walk in wisdom, he says, applies to your words. Let your speech always be gracious. You've talked to some people who work in restaurants, and they say, unfortunately, again, I don't, you know, these are anecdotal, but I just put it to you because it's the kind of thing that challenges me and makes me rethink things. They say sometimes some of the most difficult times to, to waitress and, and wait, you know, is between 12 and 1 o'clock on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon, right, when all of us go to lunch. You know, and they say they get the, some of the worst tips and the worst attitudes. 
you know, and, and never let it be said. You know, these are the things again and again. Be careful to walk in wisdom with the, with the outsiders. It, in some sense, they know you walk in. If some way you are identified with the name of Jesus, and you don't even know who thinks you're identified with the name of Jesus. I'm surprised all the time who knows who I am. And I don't know, you know what that is, but there are just times when all of a sudden I'm aware these people know who I am. And it's like, what did I do? Like, what did I say? Am I walking in wisdom, right? And in my, my, in my speech always being gracious because I represent Christ as a Christ follower and watching my words, my conversation, whether, I'm, whether it's a visitor here on Sunday morning or, or whether it is your waitress at lunch after church or your employee at work, you stand before the watching world bearing witness to a living Christ. And the seasoning of our speech and the way that we walk is crucial to the, to the effectiveness of our witness to make Christ attractive and beautiful to the world. Not to mention it is just playing the way we ought to be. Like Jesus. And he says walk in wisdom, making the best use of time. Verse 5, making the best use of the time. You know, that can be a very general statement, making the best use of, of all your time, right? To know the hour, the hour of the church, the hour is late, the day has come. And making the best use of all of our time as followers of Jesus, we steward our money and we steward our time to of the resources he places into our hands. And so Paul would direct us, if we have a mission and we have core things that we're to be about, discipleship and a walk with Christ. I've got to invest in that. I've got to put time in that. I've got to do work on that. I've got to, that's got to be a chunk of my life and my time. And I've got to, you know, the mission of the church and to be engaged in prayer. Where do I get these big rocks into my bucket of life? And so to make the best use of time, he says, in, in Romans 13, 11 to 14, he says this. You know the time. The hour has come. Right? And that's always true for the church. The hour has come. It's an important moment. Right? Jesus has come and gone and he is coming again. And he has left us with a ministry and a mission and a, and a message. Right? And, the, and the time, the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep. Some of us need to shake the cobwebs out and, 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 and awaken to the hour that the, the make the most use of our time. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling, not in jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ when you go to lunch today. Right? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ when you go home. To deal with your unruly children or to deal with your unruly spouse. You know, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. But another way to, to, to hear this is not just that the hour is late so you should be about the master's business, but is even more specific. Because he is asking to pray for doors of opportunity to be opened. And then he says... Actually, if, if the Greek, the word order is, it simply says, the time, redeem. Pray for an open door for the gospel. Watch and be thankful in prayer and redeem the time. 
The word time there, there are two in the Greek, and one is a more general chronos for time. Make the best use of your time. You, you know, all, all that chronos you got, right? But the second word for time is kairos, and it, and it means a specific moment of time, like the hour has come, right? The, in the fullness of time, right? At the right time, that moment of time. And so when he says, pray for open doors for the, for the gospel and for ministry, and then he says, and then make the most of the time, he, I think he is saying probably right here is, Make the most of every opportunity, the divine appointments when the doors open. If you pray for an open door, walk through it. Step up, speak out, enter in. Right? Make the most of the opportunity. Make, make the most of that time, that moment that you've been praying for. That divine appointment that we desire. Do we desire those appointments? Do we pray for those appointments like Paul does and encourages us to? And then, and then when they come, do we make the most? Do we step in with speech seasoned with grace, seasoned with salt, knowing how to give an answer because we've been praying and preparing to be useful? How do we apply this? Let me just give you a couple of quick things. And largely, I told you at the beginning what I would hope, and that is for a movement of prayer in the church. Because I believe that every, I mean, they say, you know, some of the greatest revivals that have crossed the planet have come from small prayer meetings. Often small prayer meetings of young people. Uh, some of the student movements have given risen to some great revivals. But small groups of prayer, praying people, seeking exactly what Paul is saying here, to be watchful and thankful and praying for an open door for the word of God. You know, to declare the mystery that we want to declare it, that we want to see it go out. We want to see the kingdom grow. We want to see people come to Christ and we're praying for it and we're asking for it. And where do we do that? I will give you just a few suggestions. And one is in your personal devotions. I would encourage you to develop a regular rhythm of praying bigger than yourself and your Aunt Mary. Right? To, to praying that goes beyond that in terms of the rhythms of the, the mission of the church. To pray for your church. To pray for its leaders and to pray for its vision and its mission. And to pray for doors of opportunity. And to pray for God to stir among us that we would be then ready with gracious words as the opportunities arise. To pray. Pray for the new staff members. For a right fit for us. Enabling us to move forward. And I would encourage you, if you're a lady, to come and walk the neighborhood and pray. There's a group of ladies that have already caught this vision. They come here every Tuesday morning at 8, 8.30, 8.30 to 9.30. They meet at the pavilion, and they walk the neighborhood, and they pray. Right? This is the community where the church has been planted, and so they go walking out this way, asking God to open doors of opportunity in the neighborhood. I would encourage you to come and pray with them for an hour on, on Tuesday mornings. I would encourage small groups to be centers of this kind of praying. We need this a great, the small groups are a great place to know and pray for each other. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. I'm just saying there should be an element in a rhythm of those little pockets of, of people gathering in the church from home to home, praying for the greater mission of the church and its effectiveness. And we want to multiply our small groups into neighborhood homes. That the small groups would be meeting house to house in the neighborhoods in our area. And one of the things that they're doing in addition to praying for each other and engaging in God's word is praying 
for the mission of the church, inviting their friends and their neighbors. And I'm also going to invite you to come and pray with me, um, at least for the summer. We'll see where it goes from there. But in June and July, uh, from 7 to 7.45, I'm going to come here 7 in the morning uh, and pray. I'm going to pray these prayers. And I would invite you to come and pray with me. Um, <clears throat> for June and July, Wednesday mornings, 7 to 7.45, um, to pray. I believe we need to be praying. If I'm here alone, that's all right. Two or three in his name is nice, too, because there he is with them. So if a couple of you would come, that would be awesome. Uh, but we'll pray for the church and for the community and for our leaders and for doors and for wisdom and for courage. How is God calling you to make the best use of your time as a disciple, as a prayer, as a missionary, as a part of his church, knowing that the hour is late. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. We thank you for Paul, who followed you in his weakness and found your grace to be sufficient and your power to rest upon him through Christ, that you used him in mighty ways. Father, we know that you still do this. We know that you are still at work, that you are still building your church and advancing your kingdom and, and, and sending forth the gospel in power. So we ask and pray that we would be a church that would capture, uh, be captured by the vision of your kingdom and that we would make the best use of our time, that we would, that we would seek you both in our own personal discipleship, that we might be deepened and set free from ourselves so that we might give strong and powerful and beautiful witness to you, but also that we might engage as a church, that doors would be open for us and for the gospel. Help us. Come near and stir us, we ask and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.